Today I am reading chapter 14 from the book of John. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. 
These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Maureen. Good afternoon, First Baptist. So today, as you've noticed, we're stepping away from our Acts series to look at a passage in John's Gospel. In Acts, we've begun to see the work of God through the Holy Spirit in this newly formed church. So today's sermon, you might want to see a sort of a flashback. We're going to take a look together at the backstory of all of this. What did Jesus actually tell his disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit? And what were they to understand about his presence with them going forward? So keep the story of Acts in the back of your mind as we're looking at our passage today. What comes to mind for you when you think of the word home? Over the pandemic, we've all spent a lot of times in our time in our houses or apartments, and maybe that's a place that feels like home for you. Or maybe you think of the house you grew up in, or the city you're from. Or maybe you've lived in a few different places and don't have a good, a good sense of where home is anymore. Is it Vancouver, or where you grew up, or somewhere you lived in between? Or maybe for you, home is a person. I remember talking with a friend of mine a number of years ago, and he said to me that um, for him, home was wherever his wife was. So it didn't matter where in the world he lived, as long as she was there, he was home, which I thought was a pretty romantic thing to say. Is there someone in your life who feels like home to you? I think that in an ideal sense, home should be a permanent thing, a place of safety that we come back to, a place of rest where we can be fully ourselves. Unfortunately, that's often not our experience today. Things can happen that leave us feeling unrooted, a broken relationship, the loss of a job, a move, or even a dream that was never realized. These can wonder, make us wonder where we can go to feel fully at home. I went through the process myself of moving this summer. So I live with my sister and she just bought a condo out in New Westminster. So I decided to leave our rented apartment near UBC and move with her. 
Now, I've moved a lot in my life. There was a period of time where I was moving about every two years. So I was surprised by this time of mourning I went through for my old house and my old neighborhood. The new place was much nicer, but somehow over the six years I lived in that old apartment, it had become home to me, and it was really hard to leave behind. I had the sense of being unrooted. As I was reading John 14 in preparation for this sermon, what jumped out at me were these two mentions of the idea of home. In verse three, Jesus says that in his father's house there are many dwelling places. Now the Greek word for dwelling places could be translated as staying, abiding, dwelling, an abode. Later in verse 23, the same Greek word is used and is translated there as to make our home. It's describing the father and son taking up residence with Jesus' disciples. God himself dwells, stays, and abides with the person. He makes his home with them. But what's Jesus really saying here? And why was this something that his disciples needed to know? Why do we need to know this? I think what we'll see reflected in John 14 as we walk through it is that the presence of God is a defining characteristic in the life of a follower of Jesus. The disciples are reminded here to live in the light of the future promise of being in God's presence forever, of being at home with him. And at the same time, God is present with them in their daily lives. Home here might better be described as a person than a place. Home is being with God and he with us. And this isn't a new idea that Jesus is presenting. We see the importance of God's presence with his people throughout the Old Testament as well. When Moses led the people of Israel out of captivity in Egypt, God promised that he would be with them. We read in Exodus 33, the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? So God's presence here was a sign that they were the people of God. Later, when they're living in this land that God promised and under the reign of a king named Solomon, a temple is built in Jerusalem to be the dwelling place of God among his people. And we read about its dedication in 2 Chronicles 7. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, so it was filled with his presence. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. The temple was the place where God dwelled with his people. It was where the spheres of heaven, so God's realm, and earth overlapped in a way. It was where God was present with the people of Israel and where they could go to be at home with him. Now, what I find interesting as we look here at John 14 is that we'll see a continuation of the same theme of God's presence with his people, of God making his home with them, but now in a new way. Jesus says that he's about to go away, but he assures them that he will come back and take them to be with him to that, in the place where God dwells. And not only that, 
Jesus says that God himself will also come and make his home with them. He will dwell with his people through the Holy Spirit. God's presence is a defining characteristic in the life of a Christian. Now, there's a lot in this passage we could look at, but I'd like for us to focus in particular on these two references to home in verse 3 and verse 23. What difference does Jesus' promise of presence make? And we'll look at two points. So first, the promise of presence, starting in verse 1, and second, the practice of presence in verse 23. So let's take a look at this text together. This passage is part of what is called Jesus' farewell discourse to his disciples. It's his final teaching to them before his death. John 14 comes right after Peter's denial when Jesus tells his disciples that he's going away to a place that they cannot follow. Can you remember a time in your life when you got your hopes up about something, only to have everything fall apart in the end? Or when you finally felt settled and rooted, only to have all that sense of safety taken away? Jesus knew that this was about to happen to his disciples, and he's preparing them for it. They had placed all their hope on Jesus. They believed he was the Messiah, that he was finally going to restore the kingdom to Israel. But instead of the victorious ending they were hoping for, they were about to watch him die and have three dark days wondering where God was in all of this. Today, we can also have dark days wondering where God is. So as we walk through this passage, I invite you to think about what God might be saying to you in your circumstances today. So our first point, the promise of presence. Verse 1, Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus' disciples were pretty confused about what he meant by going somewhere to prepare rooms for them. So I think it's okay if we find this a bit confusing as well. What does Jesus mean here? about by his father's house and this idea of preparing a place. If we look in other parts of the Gospels, when Jesus speaks of his father's house, he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. If you remember the story, when Jesus was a boy of 12, his parents lose him when they're visiting Jerusalem, but they find him later at the temple, and he says to them, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? Later, when he clears the temple in John chapter 2, he says to those selling doves, get these out of here, stop turning my father's house into a market. So I think this idea of the father's house would have certainly brought up this, um, brought to mind the temple for his disciples. Although here, he doesn't seem to be talking about a physical temple, but the temple in the sense of the place where God dwells. Jesus says that he's preparing a place for them in the presence of his Father. Verse 3 might be translated, I will come again and take you home with me. He's making a way for them to be at home with God, a home that's lasting. And this place will be prepared through his death and resurrection. 
But where exactly is this home, and when will this happen? Thomas asks, how can they know the way if they don't know where he's going? And Jesus doesn't give, give them a straight answer about this. He doesn't give them the address of his father's house or give them the coordinates on Google Maps. Scholars have discussed when and where this is to take place. Some say the passage is talking about Jesus' second coming. In Revelation 21, which talks about this future time, John describes the new city of Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth, and he hears a voice, look, the dwelling place of God is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. We're still waiting for this day when Jesus will return and God's kingdom will be seen and will be fully in our midst. And this might very well be what Jesus is talking about here. Another interpretation is that Jesus is referring to his sending of the Holy Spirit after his resurrection. And the rooms or dwelling places he's preparing are the disciples themselves. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? I think I lean towards the first interpretation here, but maybe what Jesus is saying captures a little bit of both. He's promising his disciples a lasting home with God. Now, while he doesn't answer where or when, he does tell them how and with whom. These were the answers that were most important for his followers to know, and the most important for us today, too. In verse 6, Jesus answers, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way to get to the place where his Father dwells. He is the means to be able to step into God's presence, to access heaven, to join God's household. Now the focus of the sentence here is on Jesus being the way. So truth and life are more descriptions or clarifications of what it really means for Jesus to be the way. You might have heard it said that all religions lead to God, so it doesn't really matter which one you follow as long as you're a good person. But early Christians were very clear on the uniqueness of Jesus as the only way or door or path to access the presence of God. And part of the reason that Jesus is the only way is because he's the only truth. The truth about what God is really like is only fully seen in him. He shows us God's character. If you look at verse 10, he talks about being in the Father and the Father being in him. So this reflects the complete unity there is between Father and Son. So to see Jesus is to see the Father. I think that even if we consider ourselves Christians, it's really easy to have a false view of God sometimes. Maybe we've adopted a pop culture view of seeing God as this angry old man with a white beard who smites those who disobey him. Or maybe we've developed an image of God based on how our parents raised us, seeing what God is like in the faults and frailties of our own fathers. If we had to do everything perfectly as a child to be loved, we might think that God expects this of us, or maybe that God hates and excludes those who can't live up to what he wants. If we had an absent father, we might assume that God's the same way, that he doesn't really care about or listen to us. Or maybe we've had bad experiences with people who've called themselves Christians and assume that God must be like them. 
living in a more affluent society, I wonder if sometimes we see God as the one who should make everything go well for us all the time, to protect us from any or all suffering. I think this was a bit of the view of God I grew up with, believing that if I was a Christian, everything would go well for me all the time. We learn here that Jesus is the way because he is the truth. So if we want to know what God is actually like, we need to look at Jesus. Jesus, who shared meals with those who weren't accepted by the religious elite at the time. Jesus, who made sure there was enough wine to drink at a wedding. Jesus, who acted counterculturally, spending time speaking with a Samaritan woman at a well. Jesus, who chose uneducated fishermen as his disciples. Jesus, who defended the poor. Jesus, who called his followers to forgive their enemies. Jesus, who told his disciples that life would be hard, but not to be afraid, because he had overcome. Jesus, who cried when his friend died. Jesus, who taught that to love was to be willing to even give up your life for others. And Jesus, who promised he would be present with his followers through all of it. What's your image of God? Does it look like Jesus? Jesus is also the way to God's presence because he is the life. He is the only source of true life. Through him we have salvation and forgiveness of sins. He makes a way to have a lasting home with God. He himself is like a temple. He's this place where heaven and earth overlap. So rather than going to a place to meet with God, we go to a person, we go to Jesus. And he makes a way for us to receive the Holy Spirit, the living presence of God with us today that we'll look at a bit, bit more in our second point. Jesus brings the promise of lasting presence with God. He opens the way for us to find a home that will last. The presence of God is a defining characteristic in the life of a Christian. And this brings us to our second point, the practice of presence. In the 17th century, Brother Lawrence wrote a series of letters that were later compiled into a famous book called The Practice of the Presence of God. He writes about this discipline of living each day, teaching himself to remember that God's with him at every moment, in all things, and at all times. And this can be a habit that we can develop too, to remember that God's near. And in practice, we experience God's presence today through his Holy Spirit. So we'll continue in verse 23. Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home, so take up residence with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while I'm still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. So he's talking here about the continued presence of God with his people through the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that if anyone loves, them, loves him, they will obey his teaching, and they will be loved by his Father, and he and his Father will make their home with that person. Why is there a link between love and obedience here? 
Is Jesus saying that God's presence and love depend on our obedience? We've just seen that Jesus is the only way or door or path to get to God. So he isn't isn't saying now that obedience is a condition to gaining God's love. But what he is saying is that a real relationship with Jesus is lived out in obeying his words. If you think for a moment of someone in your life that you greatly respect, I'm sure if that, that person gave you some advice, you'd take it pretty seriously. That's the kind of person you'd listen to. On the other hand, if you said that you loved someone, but continued to only think of yourself and act in your own self-interest, people would wonder if you actually love that person. Love is shown in our actions. Obedience to Jesus flows out of our love for him. And it's also a reflection of the unity with Jesus and his Father that he invites us into as well. Just as Jesus' love for and unity with his Father is reflected in obedience, ours is to be too. We, are his, as his followers, are called to walk as Jesus did. And what's this command he's talking about? He spells it out a bit more in chapter 13, verse 34. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So love for God and love for others goes hand in hand. If a person's life doesn't reflect this love, can they say they have a relationship with God in the first place? Do you want to know God more deeply? Then invest in loving those around you. The more we love God, the more we will want to live out his commands. Jesus invites us to walk as he did. But even this is something we don't need to do on our own. Just as the way to the Father's house was opened up through Jesus, so also the means to obey his command to love each other and to experience God's presence in our daily lives is also a gift. It's given through the Holy Spirit. Um, A couple weeks ago, Anthony talked about the role of the Holy Spirit as we saw it in Acts and our need to have an ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. What about in John 14? How is the role of the Holy Spirit described here? So in this passage, he's called both an advocate as well as a teacher and recaller. Verse 26, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. The word translated advocate here is courtroom language. It's the one who comes alongside, who defends and speaks for you. And we're told here that the Holy Spirit is also to teach and remind Jesus' followers. His role is to point to Jesus, to remind his disciples of his teaching. Jesus is the truth, and the Spirit will help them to recall what's true and to give discernment about how to live out his commands in their life circumstances. And this will be important not only for his disciples at that time as this new church is growing, but it will also be important for each subsequent generation of Christians as the community grows. Because each generation will have its own struggles and its own questions, which may be different from the questions being asked in the first century. The world is changing, and we need wisdom from the Holy Spirit to know how to apply Jesus' teaching to our own situations. 
Craig Keener, in his commentary, writes, the spirit is thus given to the community, not only to keep them aware of the continuing presence of Jesus among them, but to enable them to continually reapply the teaching of Jesus to ever new situations. The Spirit thus was also equipping for the situation that lay before them. So the Holy Spirit shows us how to live as God would have us to. Now I find the question that kind of comes to mind for me as I'm looking at this is, well, if we have the Spirit with us to remind us and to guide us, then why are Christians so divided about things? It seems to me that if the Holy Spirit is meant to give us wisdom and help us to imply, apply and interpret scripture, then shouldn't Christians agree on it about everything? If we look at the New Testament, we see division and disagreement among Christians even in the book of Acts. Maybe this is because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that we still see through a glass dimly. Some things haven't been fully made clear yet. And so, even Christians seeking to love God and neighbor may come to different conclusions about what this looks like. This is when we can choose to express our love for others in humility, acknowledging that none of us see things completely clearly. In the places that we're divided today, how can we put the interests of others before our own? But sometimes, I think Christians are also divided simply because we don't know the scriptures. How can the Holy Spirit bring to mind Jesus' teaching if we don't know what he says in the first place? We need to know what Jesus' commands are if we're to live them out. And living out his commands is part of how we live in relationship with him, according to John 14. We're called to be obedient to what his word says. So in practice then, we experience God's presence with us through his Holy Spirit. He marks us as the people of God, and God promises his presence will be with us both in the present and also in the future. God's presence is a defining characteristic of a Christian. So overall then, how does this passage speak to us? We who look back centuries later on circumstances that Jesus' first followers lived through, what are we to do with John 14? Today, even though our context is different, some things haven't changed. Jesus himself is the same, and he still promises his Holy Spirit to those who ask. And we're still called to live out a relationship with him by loving one another. Through this, people will come to see a bit of what God's like. And today, I think we still wonder sometimes where God is when things get hard. We go through dark days too. But like in the Old Testament, and like with Jesus' disciples, it's the presence of God with his people that makes a difference. It's God's presence that equips us to face life with all its pain and all its messiness, in the places where we only see through a glass dimly, while we're still waiting for Jesus to come again and to bring his kingdom in its fullness. When I came to Vancouver seven years ago to study at Regent, it was after a pretty challenging and dark season of my life, a season of loss where I wondered where my life was going and what God was doing. And I had a lot of questions about where God was when things got hard, and why didn't he just prevent things from happening? So during my studies, I spent time reading about Christians who went through difficult circumstances, chronic illness, loss of relationship, the death of loved ones. 
And I found the common theme that emerged in all of their stories was one of remembering that God was with them, like Brother Lawrence practicing God's presence. This seemed to be more important than getting an answer to the why these things were happening. There's something about trusting that we are not alone in our struggles, of believing that God's doing something in the midst of it all, that we can trust him, that makes a difference. We don't need to be afraid even in the dark. As David writes in Psalm 139, even the darkness will not be dark to God. In the book of Job, in the Old Testament, if you know the story, he loses everything. He loses his family and his fortune. And his friends each come to him offering explanations of what went wrong and why he's going through so much tragedy in his life. But in the end, none of their answers sufficed. Instead, the answer Job needed was to know the presence of the answerer himself, to know the one who knows the answers and to trust him, to know God. We will have struggles. We, like the disciples, will have dark days. We'll go through moves that leave us feeling unrooted. But God promises us a home. We have a lasting home with him. And not only that, but he's already made his home with us today. So we're already at home in a way. And we can reach out to him knowing that we're never alone. So home in John 14 is more a person than a place. Home is being with Jesus. He's the place of safety we can come back to. He's the place of rest where we can be fully ourselves. He gives us roots when we feel unrooted. And his offer of home is one that's lasting. The presence of God is a defining characteristic in the life of a Christian. What difference might remembering God's presence make to you today? Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your presence with us in all that we do and that you have promised to never leave or forsake us. Help us even this week both to grow in our love for you and in our awareness that you are there. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.